Hi, everybody. Welcome once again to the Who Are You podcast. Our aim is to entertain. We dig up interesting people who have done some pretty exciting things, like professional and Olympic athletes, ultra runners, famous musicians, extreme athletes, and sometimes just plain extreme people. Hey, everybody. Guess who I've got back? I've got back what I call the third rail. And a lot of you guys know Kevin. Kevin Rail, that is. I, as I say, I call him the third rail because he's full of electricity, passion, craziness. And he's a man who knows an awful lot about an awful lot of things. And what I like most about him, aside from his electric passion, is the fact that he takes a position whether he's right or wrong. And the fact is he's mostly right. I like people who will take an educated position on things and still keeps an open and flexible mind. And that's Kevin Rail. He also is my product specialist. I'm so proud to have him on the team at Biotrope. Labs. This is the guy that responds to dosing issues and ingredient issues and questions and things in general that especially the extreme level athletes who use our products need to know about. The foundation was laid way back in second, third grade when I was trying to be a people pleaser to my dad and like my family members and stuff. All of my peers around me, like I said, I was highly sensitive. I was very impressionable and I didn't want to be looked at as a schlub or a schlep or like overweight or out of shape or anything like that. So I was always trying to outdo everybody on the playing field or on my bike or if I was running or if I was in gym class or wherever it was, you name it. I couldn't accept failure. So I had a very high standard that was drilled into my head at a young age. Buckle up and get ready to enjoy our interview with elite level fitness trainer, Kevin Rail. I think that worked. I want to give a massive welcome to my boy here, my good friend, Kevin Rail. We've been doing business a long time now. Glad to have him back on the podcast. We're going to talk a little bit about the old just to refresh everybody about who he is and what he does and bring up a little bit of the new. Hey, Kevin. Hey, Craig. What's shaking? What's shaking is you, baby. Good to have you. Well, I really appreciate that nickname you crafted for me, the third rail. And it was funny because I had a shirt that said Fast Times the Third Rail that I got in 1998 from a friend of mine who went to the shore in Ocean City, I think it was, and he brought it back as a gift. It was the name of a surf shop or something like that, but I never knew the true essence of the third rail until you explained to me exactly what it was. Oh yeah, you are the third rail. For those of you who don't know what the third rail is, if you grow up on the East Coast, New England where I grew up or New York or any of those, yeah, that third rail is what make those trains and trolleys move underground. That's where the electricity is and you got to stay away from the third rail. Let's get rolling here. We're going to talk about a bunch of stuff. I'm going to go over this new vegan movement. Game Changers, as we know, had a big impact. I, I have very strong views of that documentary, mostly negative. Let's just back up a little bit first. Let's just get a little background here. You started working out when you were five or six years old. How could you be aware of your body and exercise and health so young? What's up with that? First of all, this could kind of explain a lot of that. My dad was in the military. He was the army, actually, and he was a head chef for the army. But he was very meticulous with his regimen. He grew up on a farm with three other siblings, and his parents were strict, obviously. It was old school. He was old-fashioned, and he was old school, and he wasn't even really nice to us, to be honest with you. He was just strict. Like if you see Christmas Story, he was kind of like that father, except even more strict and not as like bubbly or friendly. He was very black and white and cut and dry. At a young age, he was teaching me all these exercises that he had learned in the military. Side straddle hops, squat thrusts, arch thrusts, all these different moves. So he kind of started instilling movement and exercise into my brain at a young age. And I was very impressionable. I'm empathic and I'm psychic all rolled into one. That's one of my greatest strengths, but it is as well one of my greatest weaknesses. I remember sitting at the lunch table all the time and I would literally suck my stomach in 
because I was afraid I was going to be made fun of because I had a pot belly. And even though there was no pot belly to be even seen, that was the groundwork that was going on in my brain and my head. And it actually laid a foundation for what later became a massive eating disorder I had in my adulthood. Let's chat about something that I was going to bring up. You hit it already. Is your eating disorder almost homeless, penniless, gave up on life? You really had that life at one time. A lot of people face this sort of stuff and they're nowhere near understandably as vulnerable about it and willing to talk about it as you are. A lot of people view it as embarrassing. You always just view it as a chapter in your life that you need and want to talk about. So tell us about it. What was How did it happen? The foundation was laid way back in second, third grade when I was trying to be a people pleaser to my dad and like my family members and stuff. All of my peers around me, like I said, I was highly sensitive. I was very impressionable and I didn't want to be looked at as a schlub or a schlep or like overweight or out of shape or anything like that. So I was always trying to outdo everybody on the playing field or on my bike or if I was running or if I was in gym class or wherever it was, you name it, I couldn't accept failure. So I had a very high standard that was drilled into my head at a young age. And that eventually started causing me to sit at the lunch table with my stomach sucked in. I would skip lunch altogether several days a week. I would pocket the lunch money and I would skip lunch and I would be hungry for several hours. So, so I'd eat breakfast and then I wouldn't eat again until I got home at night. So I was already laying the foundation for what I do regularly now and I'm well known for, which is fasting, which we can get down to that topic down a little bit later. Little did I know that that's what I was doing. But at the time, that's not where my mind was at. You know, you can skip meals as fast and that's totally fine. But it's when it affects your life and your relationships and your job and all these other factors and your sleep habits, your life becomes disoriented because of your eating habits. That's when it's a problem. So my relationship with food was often disoriented. But to me, it was I can't get lean enough. And I have to do whatever I can to get leaner. I don't hold anything back because we all are controlled by ego. They're controlled by possessions. They're controlled by look at me, look at me. They're controlled by I, me, my. They can't get enough of themselves. They're always posting stuff on Facebook, Instagram, you name it. It's, it's absolutely breaks my heart when I see it. But I pull no punches and I'm as, I'm as raw as they come. If I'm in a good mood, you'll know it. If I'm in a bad mood, you'll know it. We're all gifted separately and differently. We all have something to give this universe and add to it. You should always be about the solution and not the problem. I feel like we all have something to give and offer. We should never compare ourselves to anyone else. Yeah, those are beautiful words. The name of the podcast here is the Who Are You podcast. And you've been a big believer for a long time that you want to bring out the who are you in you. Who are you? And let everyone be the best person they can be without comparing to someone else. It's unrealistic to compare to other people. I had a question for you. You've got a lot of experience in the sports fitness field, supplements, nutrition. Everywhere you look, you've got your hand in on it. But uh, So you got your degree in sport management and fitness and wellness. How does that degree square up with your real world experience? Is there a relationship? Did it help you? Was it just good exposure or was the real education taking that education, getting out there and re-educating yourself in the business of private fitness? You do a lot of private fitness. You work with elite level athletes and you are an elite level athlete. People can't see you, but Kevin's ripped. You look like you run at about 6%. What, what is your body fat? It's probably more like around 8-9% in the winter and then summertime it's ridiculously low. It's usually about 4-5% to in the summer. That's like bodybuilder stage ready. Speaking about comparing, by the way, I mean, people look at you and say, geez, I want to look like that. This is not the question I asked you, but this is now the question before us. So people look at you and say, geez, I want to be as fitness healthy and as ripped as Kevin. Is it realistic for me to look at a picture of somebody that I want to look like and try to achieve that? Yeah, it's totally realistic. I get that from clients all the time. I'm working with this guy. He's a prosthodontist and he makes like tooth implants. Like he's an artist too. And he makes them and like paints them and all this stuff. He's a pretty well-known guy. And he's specifically pulled me out of the, the wall of trainers over the summer to, to have me train him because he saw my picture out there. I read your bio. I saw your picture. I saw a video of you. He goes, and I want to look just like you. He goes, you can help me get to where I want to get with my roles. 
I'm like, well, in order to look like me, to answer your question, Craig, you got to act like me and you got to live my lifestyle. And are you willing to make those sacrifices? And if you are willing to go that route and make the sacrifices that I make and do the daily routine that I do, then yes, you can totally get in a shape similar to me. My strategy on how I look the way I do and what I do and how I do it. And to me, it's, it's routine. It's basic. It's like easy because I've gotten to that point. Your diet, your sleeping habits, your relationships with people, your human connection, what kind of toxic people you don't want in your life. Those people that need to be eliminated from your life, all these things have a, a role in how you're going to look. They all have an impact, everything. You firmly believe that patterns that we start at a young age are critical for greasing the wheel for future growth change and all that stuff. So what about people who haven't had the benefit of good, healthy grooves going on for them? How does that person get into gear when they may have a lot of mental blockages? How do you break down those blockages so they can get into the sixth gear? And the second part is, does sixth gear look the same for everybody? When you think of sixth gears, you think of fast, you know, flying, ripping car down the freeway. I like the analogy. It's a good analogy. But what does it look like for someone who's got 150, 200 pounds to lose versus someone like you who's trying to get their, their next PR at the next Leadville 100 or whatever the distance is they run up there uh, or, or a podium finisher? What does sixth gear look like? for that person i like the word rip it first of all or rip i do meals and i do eating clubs and i do all these fun tools that some of them i handcraft and in my workouts i'll pick up this heavy god it's 40 pounds and i'll be like i'll let it rip for like a set of 10 360s to one side and then to the other and then i'm like when i go skiing i'm always ripping it i'm not one of these guys that goes through the woods or goes off cliffs i try to find a nice little head wall and a straight line and i just rip it i like to rip it the first part of your question is it's called start small and grow tall it's that simple if a guy comes up to me who's 50 pounds overweight, never exercised a day in his life, smokes a pack of cigarettes a day, has four glasses of Pinot Noir at night, has a bowl of ice cream right after that, and it's 11 o'clock at night. If he's up late eating ice cream, if any of you are up late eating ice cream, you need to contact me ASAP because you shouldn't be doing that. The ironic thing is he is in line to make the most progress faster than the guy who has five extra pounds on his body, who works out three times a week, who has a little bit of physical literacy, who eats relatively clean and just needs a couple tweaks. The heavier weight guy is going to make faster progress and more progress and probably get more motivation than the guy that has the excess five pounds who wants to just tighten up, tone up, or do a little tweak here and there. What I would do with that person who didn't start at five years old like I did is we just locate three to five small things he can do to change his lifestyle that will start getting him progress, and then we just build on him. We just add on it. You're never too old to get started. I don't care if you're 20, 30, 50, 75, 85, 95. You're never too old. I've trained everyone from three-year-olds at my friend's daycare center, teaching them yoga, all the way up to 95-year-old men who were sitting in a wheelchair because I do biohacking. That's like my main bread and butter. I know how to trick the system and fool the system into expanding and taking your health to an exponent of 10 instead of an exponent of average. So the guy that has never done anything before, I would start off slow with him and I would gradually build him up. And I would, I would be able to locate by an interview with him where, where his main motivators are, what his key areas are that he can change that are the easiest thing to change and if that means walking for 30 minutes three days a week and that's it for a week great i would have him do it for a month and i would have him give up like one of the worst eating habits he has if he's drinking four glasses of wine a night it gets cut down to two glasses so i start small and i grow tall it's that simple and then the two glasses of wine he eliminates translates to a pound of weight loss a week and i'm like cool well do you want to keep going and he's going to say yes i'm like well, what can you do next and then he'll say well let's cut it down to one glass of wine and I'll, work, I'll walk four times this week for 30 minutes. It starts gradual. And within a year, you can probably get to a point where he's going into sixth gear and he's, he's going toward the rail style. And then to answer your question about the sixth gear, yes, everyone's sixth gear is different. And there's this thing called minimum effective dose that a lot of people do in the fitness industry. To me, 
My minimum effective dose is a pretty big doggone dose, but for me, it's the minimum effective dose. The idea of the minimum effective dose is dependent upon the situation that you're working in. And in your, in your case, you got to beef up that, uh, that metabolism. So I think that's what you're talking about here. You got to get some moves going on so that people can start getting flex- flexible, move blood around, start losing weight, get some muscle tone. Yeah. So everybody's six gear is different. Everyone's body is different. Everyone is abstract. Some people can eat a ton of carbs, such as myself and feel zero ramifications, they'll feel amazing and and good. And some people can't break them down as well. Some people have gluten issues. Some people have aversion to beans, to carrots, to beets. So you have to become aware of what works for you and what doesn't and go with what works. Stick with your signature strengths and keep it simple. And it helps a lot to have a motivator and a mentor like Kevin along to push you along with all his great positivity and energy. So the other question I asked you was, where is the intersection, if any at all, between your college degree in sports fitness and your practical reality in sport fitness? Uh, It was a very good experience for me to go through the whole college deal. The ironic thing is a lot of it was kind of review sort of because I was already so like into like health and fitness. I mean, I was reading magazine after magazine after book after book. I was doing experiments, trials, fusing the gaps between what you were saying about getting my degree and then like the real world experience. I don't feel like anything you learn in a school or through a certification or an online certification or even like a weekend workshop or a weekend certification or week long thing or six week thing is ever going to be a good substitute for real life experience with human connection, with eye contact and people right in front of you. The degree I went through was a very good foundation builder. And I learned a lot about anatomy and physiology and all these other things. But there's a big difference between going through a certification, regardless if it is NASM or ASM. There's a big difference between that and being on a gym floor, exchanging information with someone eye to eye and watching them move and watch the, the way their shoulders move in and when they're doing exercises or holding a plank or their back is sagging when they're doing push-ups. That is real world experience that you cannot get from getting a degree or certification. So anyone out there listening, if you're, if you're going down that road of health and fitness, just know it. Just know that it's not a substitute. You've got to be able to balance both of them And I highly suggest if you're going through a certification process or a degree, get your buns on a gym floor absolutely immediately. Find a mentor and follow them, track them, ask if you can watch them train people and meet them, you know, face to face, take notes. And that is such valuable learning that you just can't get from books and you can't get from a, from a classroom. The real world experience trumps everything, in my opinion. I'd say that of uh, the three here, the college education, the fitness certification, and hands-on practical experience, it all begins with hands-on practical experience. It helps so much. I'd say that athletes have the edge there. And it seems to me that the certification process is mostly there just to, oh, I don't know, let's say validate you. But in a way, I, I think it's backwards. What do you say to that? Yeah, I totally agree. Is there a place, well, to you, but not necessarily to the, uh, let's say, to the client and to really, frankly, most of the private trainers out there, but is there a place for that kind of training for some people? For example, we were talking earlier about one step at a time, I think, to paraphrase you. Is there a place out there for the person who, let's say, can't do any more than throw you on a, on a machine bench press, a machine leg press, a machine uh, leg extension curl, et cetera, so on and so forth? There's there, is there a place for that kind of person out there, or uh, does the fact that they're training that way indicate a lack of understanding and a lack of knowledge uh what what is all that is there a place for that person no no i don't think so everyone chooses who they choose as a trainer if someone comes to me and starts training with me and i'm not feeling it i'm not feeling good mojo with them or good chi i will happily not take their money if their mojo is bad they're interfering with my good mojo and my good spirit and my good energy i can't train them some people that are just getting into exercise want the machines they request them and they say i just want simple basic nothing complicated if that's your jam, that's great. I don't judge you for that. Is there a practical application? Sure. The seated chest press machine 
It will build, build strength. It will build definition and stuff like that. It's not my jam. It's not my thing. Everybody, you can see why I call him the third rail. He, he's about to burst through the screen here. Let me just ask you a question here about toxic clients. When it's really not the client that's toxic, but there's something about the client that really isn't negative, that's pressing buttons in you, and you're really the toxic person. They're bringing something up in you that's toxic and thus creating a toxic relationship, which you mistakenly put on the the client. That takes a little bit of head work to figure out what's going on there, that it's really not John Doe, the client. This is really me. I need to forgive John Doe. I need to work on me and make this relationship with the client better. Do you have a comment on that? Uh, That's a brilliant question, actually, because that is so true. Because as trainers, too, we deal with so many people's emotions all the time. And they can come into a session and their heart can be completely in the right place. But they can pull things out of you as a person, not as a trainer, just as a person that you didn't realize were there and, and maybe pull up some old wounds or you recognize a pattern that they're going through that you once went through that that had become dormant or deeply embedded in the ground that just got sprouted back up again. And then you go home and you're like, wow. And then you start feeling worried when you go into that session with them that they're going to bring something back up again that's going to spark something in you. And in that case, you've got to keep it real in your mind. And remember, this is not about you. It's about them. You have a unique way of training. Uh, So we've talked about very, very lightly some of the traditional things here, you know, leg press, bench press. But you work out with with, uh, a particular type of club. Give us the lowdown on that. They're called Indian clubs. They've been around for longer than both of our great-grandparents, and they were popularized in America in the golden era of fitness between 1880 and 1920. They were used originally in the British military when England took over India. India actually is where they originated, and there are these tools they used which were called Mugdal, and they looked like a rolling pin that you would roll dough out, but only had one handle on one side. All of them were two pounds each. When England took over India, they noticed all the people were using these tools and all these, these different types of patterns, circulars patterns. And they looked at them and they're like, hmm, those could be beneficial for our military forces for hand-to-hand combat. And when they're out in the field, and they're like crawling around and stuff like that and doing all these different motions. So they went and took this tool and handcrafted it into what's now known as the, the British style Indian club. And it kind of looks like a wooden bowling pin. And they started crafting all these movements with them that were in the form of circles, spirals, and figure eights because they helped block punches and they helped with striking and stuff like that. They then got adopted by the military forces and martial artists over the years. Fast forward into the golden era of fitness in America, a guy named Simon Keyhole, who was out in England, saw this, this technique going on and kind of equivocated it to like movement gymnastics. So they started being used in America when he brought them over and then like Spalding and all these companies started making bazillion Indian clubs. They were in YMCAs, they were in military forces, colleges, high schools, you name it. If you look at any classical pictures that are in black and white from like the 1880s of high schools or any kind of gymnasiums, alongside the wall and on or racks all the way around the walls, you'll see Indian clubs everywhere. They were super, super popular. And they were really good for posture. They're really good for wrist, elbow, and shoulder coordination. They're really good for brain function because you're crossing the midline of your body. So that's another thing that I specialize in is neurological load. So a lot of the movements that I do, like my six-pack challenge workout, it's all three-dimensional movements. You're, you're always moving your limbs in different ways. You're on the ground. You're rocking. You're rolling. You're doing log rolls. You're doing single-leg stuff, single-arm stuff, alternating arm. All that stuff is really good for the brain. Well, Indian clubs are the same exact way. So when you come across the midline of your body and you're doing a pattern, your brain cells are getting fired up big time. And I'm talking like off the charts, way better than board games, way better than crossword puzzles, way better than reading, way better than luminosity. These tools help better than all that stuff because you're also doing it from a standing position and you're improving your posture and you're improving your recoveries between workouts, between sets of workouts and workouts themselves because you're bringing a lot more oxygenated rich blood flow to your joint capsules and working the micro muscles that are really close to the joints, which makes them more resilient to harm and danger and injury. And they help 
if you're integrating clubs in your workouts, which I do every single day, in between sets, it flushes the lactic acid out like that in a split second, and then it brings the oxygenated-rich blood back in, causing your joints to be stronger, so you can actually lift more weight. So I do the standard stuff. I do squats, I do lunges, I do uh, leg presses to try to blow up my legs a bit to get them as, as strong as possible for carrying. Talk about experience, man. It takes a long time of doing something to, to dial in you know, how to do it closer to right for the way you want to do things. And the way I want to do things at this time in my life is uh, in the mountains is the lightest possible way. So I've managed to get down to 30. How much of what you do would really help me, would uh, suffice for me, given the environment that I need to train for now? Yeah, that's one of the great myths of, of the leg extension. There's good form and bad form of everything. There's a time and place for everything. And again, although I was bashing machines before, I also put a footnote in there and I said, there's nothing wrong with machines because they can still build strength, etc. And if I want to get like a really ripped teardrop quadricep, especially my vastus lateralis, then I'll throw a month's worth of leg extensions into my protocol and I'll stick them in there once a year maybe just for fun, just for kicks. And I'll tell you what, they burn the crap out of my, out of my quads and they build... Yeah, they're no fun. They suck. And they build that really nice teardrop right at the top of my knee, and I can walk around looking at myself feeling good. But by way of example, so I gave that big backdrop. What would you do with the club training that would be equalish to that sort of routine so that I'd have the same great strong legs to power me through, let's say, 50 miles of 10 mountain passes as high as you know, 13,000 feet and as low as 7 to get up and down? Well, the ironic thing is you want to build power and you want to build strength, but you want to build muscle endurance at the same time too. So I would give you a heavy dose of some of my kettlebell specialty drills, I would teach you how to do Turkish get-ups, first of all, overhead carries, and then we would do complexes. Like uh, a complex would be like a one-arm swing, then a clean, then a reverse lunge, and a press. Everybody hates lunges. I hate them, but they're so damn good for you. What, what do I want to do a reverse lunge? What is the value in a reverse lunge? It's, to me, the value in a reverse lunge is really more balanced than anything else. What do you say? Balance is one thing, but I find the reverse lunges are easier to do than forward lunges. They're easier on the knees, I feel. And you can judge the angle of your front knee a lot easier when you do a reverse lunge than when you do a forward lunge. Because well, oftentimes what people do is if they're doing alternating forward lunges or they're holding dumbbells doing that or whatever, they'll step forward and their knee just kind of like shoots forward way too far. And I always try to tell people, keep your knee in line with your ankle. And the rule of thumb is never let your knee go past your toes when you're doing lunges because it puts too much strain on your knees. I'll have to give those a try again. And the other thing, just the uh, little... Uh little hook on that forward lunge we were talking about. The reason I think people uh, go past their ankle toward their knee is, frankly, it's easier when you do that. And if you do it the way you described it, where you uh, don't go past your ankle, that's a, that's closer to a proper lunge, and it puts the stress rate exactly where it's supposed to go. And after you do three or four of those, you don't want to do those anymore, and you start going more toward your, your ankle, because despite the fact you're going more forward and a little lower to the ground, I'm not, I haven't really given this a whole lot of thought, but it takes... Uh, it redistributes the stress in a way that's easier to manage than if you do it properly. Yeah, absolutely. And the issue usually is the fact that they're just not bending their back knee enough. Their back knee stays too straight, and it causes you to, like, hunch forward, and the front knee does all the work. So sometimes I'll just come back, and I'll tap the back of the leg. I'll go, bend this knee, and then it'll just drop that knee in the back leg down, and whenever your knee starts going down backwards, your body just goes straight down. So once their knee comes to about the ankle area in the front, if you just drop your back knee and bend your back knee consciously, then you go, your body's going to go vertically downward. Let me ask you, you know, you said something once that made me laugh. I'm going to repeat it here and get a current day answer to it. You said you started lo- weight, lifting weights seriously and I, in high school. And I imagine you mean sort of the traditional stuff that we were just talking about, gym, gym type of stuff. And uh, <laughs> you said you had no clue what you were doing. You were working out like the typical high school punk. What, what, <laughs> what does the typical high school punk look like when he's working out? Well, the new, the new high school punk is different than the, the high school punk 
I was back in the day. Okay, I'll give you my high school phone first. I was reading, um, I believe it was Muscle and Fitness magazine. A couple friends from school were like into, they, they got into body, lifting weights. Man, everything's based off of bodybuilding, if you think about it, if you trace it back. That's where we all started from, bodybuilding, if you will. So there's these bodybuilders, and we would read magazines that had interviews with them, and they'd have all the workouts in there and stuff like that. And we would, we would get tips on, on those kind of workouts that they were doing. So I would do like this full body routine every day of the week because I thought if you did the same thing every day of the week, that's how you get ripped to shreds and lean and all this stuff. And I would get home from school. I'd run indoors. I'd have a package of cupcakes, barbecue chips, and a soda. And then I'd go downstairs, and then I'd lift weights because I wanted to get big and strong, and I wanted to be a professional wrestler. And the only way I can do that is if I eat a lot of food. I would eat all this junk food, then I'd go downstairs and lift weights, and I followed this routine for like an hour and a half, and it was literally the same exact routine every single day of the week, six to seven days a week. I might take a day off here and there. And I mean, it was so, it was so stupid. It was like wrist curls, both sides. I would do like 50, 50, 50, three sets in a row to start my workout. I would exhaust my forearms so badly, they'd be burning. And I'd like, ah, and they'd look like bowling pins, man. They were swole as can be. And I was like, I was happy about that. I, I wrote this list out, handwritten, yes. We used to use these things called pencils years ago. I'd write down a piece of paper and I put a nail on this beam in my basement. I nailed it up and I would look at it and it'd say three sets of this, three of this, three of this, three of this, or whatever it was. And I would just go down this list of like 20 exercises and I would do that every single day. And then in between each exercise, I'd get on the floor and I'd stick my feet under a barbell and then I would do full sit-ups with my legs straight of all things. Needless to say, I had a couple back aches here and there. And then I would just do, like I said, I'd start with wrist curls and I'd do like bench press and I'd do back rows and then I'd do like angled back rows and then I would do lat pull downs. And it was just like all the basic stuff. And I'd be like huffing and puffing and sweating like you wouldn't believe. And it always felt like an elephant was standing on my chest because I had all that junk food before I worked out. I felt like I was going to throw up and it was just an absolute nightmare. And that's, that's, how I, that's what I started with. But we all just kind of throw ourselves out. And that's how a high school punk used to work out. You mentioned that you wanted to be a professional wrestler. I think you'd be really good at it. What are you, 6'3"? How much? What do you weigh? What's your height? I weighed in at 185 the other day and I haven't weighed myself in about probably a good month. And last time I weighed myself, I was like 174. So you're lean. Yeah, I'm lean. There's no way I could ever be like probably more than 200 pounds. If I, if I tried really hard and cut back on my cardio, I could probably get to 200 if I wanted to. A lot of work to get there. But the reason I ask you that is because 175-ish and 6'3", and your personality is about five times that size. You'd be great in the in the pro wrestling scene. How come you're not a pro wrestler, man? You'd be wonderful. You'd be on TV. You'd be loud. You'd be in my face. You'd be the guy with the microphone and the funky clothing. I'm talking about the fake wrestling, man. I, I've been a wrestling fan ever since I was three years old. I don't know. I just, um, you know, back when I was probably in my early 20s or something, there was more of an emphasis on, on being huge, being big. You had to be like naturally big. Nowadays in wrestling, there's they have like cruiserweight division, they have NXT, they have all these different subdivisions where the guys are like literally 155 pounds or like they're, they're smaller, they're leaner. There's all these different, a couple different organizations out there now where, where smaller guys or lighter guys are wrestling. What struck a chord with me at a young age was the whole pageantry involved with it and the acting, the combination of like the acting, the sportsmanship and the amazing feats of strength these guys were doing all combined together. Like the, cinema, the cinematics behind it. Fusing it with like the athleticism. Everything you just said had to do with being out there. You love being on podcasts. You love being on stage. And I happen to know that you were an introvert and really shy when you were younger. So to use the word for the third time today, where was the intersection between this outward gregarious guy overcoming this introverted shy guy? Well, it was kind of just like I talked about before with people who are on different levels that come to me to train or the guy we were talking about who's 250 pounds overweight and wants to use machines as opposed to the guy that's five pounds overweight and wants to do more functional movements and whatever. It was a slow and steady, gradual change. I had a chip on my shoulder at a young age. I was bullied. I was teased. I was picked on. 
I was never out of shape. I was never overweight. I had some love handles on my side, which when I was 19 years old, I was looking into getting liposuction. That's how, that's how disturbed my brain had become because I was so disgusted with my love handles. I'm like, oh, maybe if I stopped eating fat-free Fit Newtons after country line dancing on Sunday nights at 11 o'clock at night, maybe those love handles will disappear. And maybe if I start doing some cardio and some sprint intervals, they'll disappear too. So I started eliminating late night eating and I started doing sprint intervals. And guess what happened? In a short four weeks, the love handles disappeared. I'm like, oh, good. I don't have to get liposuction now and remortgage my parents' house. Just a, sort of a sidetrack here for a second. You said you were never much for competitive sports. You also say you do regret not playing sports back then when you could have and crushing everyone to a pulp. So I sense a little bit of anger as an adult looking backwards. Are you mad at yourself for not having done it? Was it the shyness that got in the way? And you also felt that there was nepotism and bullying in sports. So I want to know, looking backwards, you regret not doing it. It sounds like you're feeling a little bit of anger about not doing it. And I want to know what your view of bullying and and nepotism is in the sports scene. Probably if I chose a sport, it would have been football. I still to this day feel like I can run, punt, pass, kick better than any other 46-year-old within the next two, three area codes of me. I can still throw 60-yard laser beams with a football, probably better than most 21-year-olds. I I would say the bullying was, it was bad back then, but it wasn't like, it wasn't like impossibly bad. You know, I, I could have gotten past the bullying. That was more just like right of passage stuff. I'm a freshman and then the seniors would be like, they bully the, the freshman every now and then or like give them wedgies or whatever in the locker room, that kind of crap. But if you didn't buy into it and you laughed it off, they would, they would leave you alone. If you allow it to get to you, it would get to you. There's nothing you can do about anything that happened in the past. You have to man up, you have to get over it and focus your attention on positive things elsewhere, which I feel like I've done. Why are you strongly against steroids? Like, just like the chest press machine, there's a time and place for everything. In the sport world, basically, let me, let me put it to you this way. If you're using them uh, to get a competitive advantage in bodybuilding or sports behind the scenes, I feel it is a crutch and it, it's, a, it's not a biohack at all. It's like it's a cheat, in my opinion, because you're, get, you're giving yourself an advantage that no one else has if, if you do it behind the scenes. We both know everybody does something. Everybody's doing something. Everyone in the, the sport world pushes as far as they possibly can push while still remaining just under the legal line. And then when they go just across the legal line and they get caught with something, then all hell breaks loose and then they're looked at as a horrible person and blah, blah, blah. But they're actually a horrible person. They got caught. They're subject A. Subject B is doing the same thing they're doing, except they just went a little too far. And subject B was able to keep it under the radar screen. Sometimes there's no story at all. The story is that it was all made up for some other agenda that, that yeah, that we don't know. It's why it's really important to, to hold back and wait and wait and not be so quick to draw judgments. My view, I always believed that Lance was taking, didn't know it for sure. There were enough clues and red flags along the way that, to me, made it pretty clear. Okay, so eventually he gets caught. He gets busted. It's clear that the U.S. Postal Support, they knew it too. They just turned their back. Everybody knew, frankly. Everybody knew in the sport. And he's not the only one taking. Lance probably started taking because he said, well, you know, X, Y, Z are taking. And if I have any chance of winning or competing against those guys, I'm going to have to take it too. And that's how it ends up going is all these people realize that they're up against people who are getting a competitive, an illegal competitive advantage to get where he is today, which is, as I understand it, backstory is about, he's worth about $100 million. But was it worth it? I don't know. But the fact of the matter is he's not alone. He's taken all the heat. And I know privately he's pissed off about that for taking all of the heat for something that's pervasive in that sport. The point I'm getting at in a bit of a roundabout way here is how do you avoid that? Well, what I would do if I found out they were all juicing or jacking up or doing something that was questionable or like totally illegal and somehow getting away with it, I wouldn't be a squeaky wheel and tell on them or narc on them. That'd be an easy way out. I would say, all right, well, I'm going to show you SOBs, how it's done without using and without doing anything else. I'm going to do some training techniques that I think I can get to a level that can compete with you guys 
through all natural means. And because I'm a biohacker, I do, I go deep into science of, of like what can reverse aging process, which would get your body to a, a level that is 10 times better than just the average. I'd be sleepless until I found the cocktail that would work best for me is from a supplementation angle and from a fasting angle, which I think is, is a big game changer. And from all the rest of the variables involved in my training. And I would train my ass off like day after day after day to try to compete with all these people. And if I at least got into like the conversation of the top four or something like that, Deep down inside, I'd be like, that's a big victory for me because I beat three people who I know are taking all this illegal stuff and they're like way past the limit and I beat them. And it's just like me saying I'm 46 years old and I can run circles around most 20-year-olds in the gym. And I don't say that because I'm being cocky. I'm saying it because it's a fact and I'm confident. Yeah, and you got to be willing to know the consequences if you do get caught or tagged. I mean, it's that simple. Uh, that's how it works with anything. There's risk and reward. I know what the risks are when I'm doing like kettlebell snatches with two kettlebells, two 24 kilogram kettlebells. I, I could do a good clean set of five to 10 reps, but I can't pay the price if I have faulty mechanics. So I got to be 100% focused. And the same thing goes with your cocktail of whatever you're doing behind the scenes. You know, we had a, we had a question a couple weeks ago on your website about the efficacy of the products and stuff. Yeah, we get that. Where people are concerned, they get their blood taken. I have a lot of professional athletes. I've got a lot of Olympic trial athletes that use our product that cannot have a negative, and I would never put them in that position having been in that position. But yeah, we get these questions a lot. I'm glad they ask. What do we tell them? We tell them it's clean as a whistle. Which it is. Which is good. That's what I yeah, it's legit. And then, you know, I mean, it's that kind of stuff that you should seek out as an athlete out there, all you people listening. It's look for the good guys that have the good, clean stuff out there and and patronize them and get their stuff and get behind their products. We also post the current WADA list, the World Anti-Doping Association list of what's illegal. So you can match that up against anything and any of our ingredients and get your own sense of uh, comfort that we're all water safe. But yeah, this individual was a cyclist and a professional cyclist, and he wanted the extra assurance. He wanted to hear it from our mouth that it was water safe, and so we took care of that. Let's move on to this uh, Game Changers thing that came out. I was told by fellow athletes that I had to see it. I did. I watched it all the way through. Did you see it? I saw it when it debuted in September, actually. You've seen it all the way through, front to back. I was a bit offended by this. I didn't know what to expect, so I went in with it. Oh, yeah, all my buddies are telling me I need to see this. Yeah, so I turn it on, I watch it, and about 20 minutes in, I forward my forehead, and I said, huh, something doesn't seem right about this. This doesn't feel quite right. I wonder what's going on here. I watched a little bit further. By the time I was midway through it, I was outright offended. I'm way into a balanced diet. I really believe balanced diet matters. You've got to have meats. You've got to have vegetables. I'm not against veganism. I'm not against vegetarian. I don't care what you do, frankly. But what I do do mind on any side of the equation here is when I sent an agenda. By the time I got to the middle of it, where the doctor and his doctor smock, you know, very happy and smiling and casually blowing out that a real man is defined by those who eat vegetables and vegetables only. I mean, right there in the lead up to this, I mean, the context for this comment is really, to me, it's really offensive. If you're not thinking, if you're just a follower and you don't pay attention and you don't do the research, you know, you're going to be one of those people that just jumps on the internet, figures out, you know, where to go get your organic vegan vegetable stuff or recipe, and you're, you're going to be in hook, line, and sinker. It's critical to do the research here because many of the claims that they made in here are definitely up for debate, up for question. Some of them are outright wrong, and some of the comparisons they make are wrong. And in my view, by the time they get to about 20 minutes to the end of this documentary, the truth really comes out because we're no longer really talking about veganism or vegetarianism or paleo versus keto. What we're really talking about is just not eating meat anymore changing the planet, saving the forest, not eating grass, no more cows farting so that we have less methane. It really comes down to that. and You really see what the true agenda is. And then when you do deeper research, you find out that everybody who
who financed this movie and was behind it. Everybody all have an agenda to move us out of the whole meat scene into a vegan scene. Okay, there's my setup, Mr. Rail, the third rail. Come at me with the third rail and tell me what, uh, so far, I've got wrong about this. Okay, first of all, every single documentary film that you see, and everyone that's listening out there, Take this into consideration. Every one of them has an agenda. For every movie that you see that's in favor of veganism or plant-based diet and tells you about all the facts about methane gas and the rainforest going down by 100 yards a day, every single one of them have an agenda. But all the movies that are in favor of meat, all the studies that you read, that are in favor of me are the same exact way. Everyone has an agenda. That's what they do. They do shock value. So they want to shock you into believing what they're saying. And the only way they can do that is by coming up with outlandish things. I have not seen a meat movie that's telling me not to eat vegetables. And every single movie, let me be clear, every single movie or documentary I see about vegetarianism or veganism is purely about going 100% to the other side, no meat at all. And to me, that's the difference. I am a crazy animal lover. I do not like the way cows are treated. I do think there's such thing as humane paleo-keto. Again, going back to the comment, the world is not a nice, tidy, wrapped-in-bow place. We, we've got to pick our spots and pick our fights and, and decide you know, how we're going to lay down with it all. I'm a big meat eater. I like meat, very conscious of where I buy and where I buy from, but you can't change these things. Just to get back to my point here, I don't see any of these movies that, that espouses all meat eating or any amount of meat eating. They're probably out there, but I can't think of them. The ones that always come to the forefront are these ones about veganism and moving to ver- vegetarianism or vegan. It's veganism. Let's call it what it is. It's not vegetarianism. It's veganism because vegetarian includes fish and vegans don't even eat fish. Oh, by the way, did you see that uh, after this movie came out and all the great talk about moving over to being a vegan and pure vegan and no meat and the planet's being ruined because people like me are eating meat, right? Don't buy that. But Will Smith's son the other day had an intervention because he is a vegan and he looks so terrible and horrible that people were saying, oh man, is something wrong? Are you okay? So I don't know. I'm going on a bit of a rant here right now, but let's come back to your comment that you are right. All of us, you know, we're trying to persuade people to move our way, but it's only the vegan crowd that I've experienced so far that's moving you 100% that way with no room for meat. Don't eat meat. I'm going to shut up and let you respond to as much of that as you want. Fire away. I wish you would ask me this question earlier because my, my, I now have only a small window of time to retort to everything you're going to say. And I've got I've got a whole hour's worth of stuff to talk about about this. Why don't we do a separate episode on this? I think we should because i got lots to say of everything you just said. And it's abundance. It makes all the sense. And it, it goes way deeper into the weeds of what the Game Changers did. All right, good. So we will circle back around in the next week or so. We'll talk all about Game Changers and all the things that I just ranted about. We'll go toe-to-toe, man. Kevin, hey, it is always a blast to talk to you. I get the joy of working with you on a daily basis anyway. But it's always great to chat. You're such a body of knowledge and such a great guy. And thanks so much for taking the time today and coming on. And we'll line up the next podcast here shortly and roll again. All right. Sounds great. Great talking with you, Craig. You've been listening to the Who Are You podcast with our special guest, elite level fitness trainer, Kevin Rail. Join us next time for another edition of the Who Are You podcast.